Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project, designed to share the latest learning about the rule of law, what it is, how it works, and how we can strengthen it. I'm Ted Pacone, Chief Engagement Officer for the World Justice Project, and I'll be your host for today's session. The topic for today's talk is how to ensure justice for all in the midst of a global pandemic. The unprecedented public health emergency caused by COVID-19, a deadly disease quickly spreading around the world, is posing a major crisis for justice defenders. These frontline actors were already facing a huge gap between demand and supply of justice services before this crisis hit. How are justice actors affected by the pandemic and how should they respond to this crisis? How can we build back better to narrow the justice gap? A gap which we estimated before the pandemic includes 1.5 billion people who cannot resolve their everyday justice problems. To help answer these questions, we are honored to have with us Hina Jelani, a leading figure in the global campaign for human rights and a pioneering lawyer and human rights activist in her native Pakistan. Ms. Jelani is also a member of The Elders and co-chair of the Task Force on Justice, an initiative of the Pathfinders for Peaceful, Just, and Inclusive Societies. It was just one year ago at the World Justice Forum in The Hague that the Task Force released its pathbreaking report on access to justice and closing the justice gap. She's joined today by Micah DeLangen, Program Lead on Justice for All with the Pathfinders and a fellow with the Center on International Cooperation at New York University. The Center coordinates the Pathfinders work as a public-private initiative to support implementation of the UN's Sustainable Development Goal 16, which includes providing access to justice for all. A warm welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. Uh, Tahina, uh, the Task Force on Justice and Pathfinders recently released an important new briefing paper on the alarming effects of this pandemic on our overburdened justice systems. What are the main challenges highlighted by this report? I think uh, I must say to start with that um, um, access to justice is one of the very visible uh, prom and prominent problems that we are now facing in the context of this current public health crisis. Uh, I think the uh, main challenge that the report points towards is that the scale of death and uh, disease uh, is uh, uh, unprecedented and that there will have to be some rethinking and reviewing of all the ways in which we have thought of access to justice so far. So that's one thing that um, is very challenging um, and um, uh, it, it, it involves a lot of consultation and multiple actors to start that conversation on what we need now to rethink and review. Uh, the report is also very clear that this particular public health crisis is also a human rights crisis and that um, the economic uh, employment and financial crisis that comes in its wake is um, increasing exclusion, increasing insecurities, 
and we need to look at areas where access to justice plays a more important and vital role now than it ever did before, especially with regard to social and economic justice for uh, the grassroots uh, communities. I think it's also important to understand that it's not just a public health and a financial crisis. There is going to be a political and social transformation which will pose its own challenges on communities, on groups, on, on institutions, both at national levels and at the multilateral level. So these are, I think, some of the important issues that this particular um, report is highlighting and trying to uh, take us through the challenges that we face and some uh, recommendations on how to respond to these challenges. It's remarkable to see how such a public health crisis is affecting so many sectors of society and these big macro questions are actually becoming more accentuated and exacerbated by, by the crisis. Can you say a bit more about how you think the pandemic is affecting the justice sector specifically? You see, the justice systems are now becoming uh, increasingly vital to responding to the COVID-19 pandemic and um, in finding ways of mitigating its worst effects. Um, and, and of course, this is a very challenging work for justice actors, and we, we know that and acknowledge that. Uh, this pandemic is, as I said, is not just a health crisis, it's also a human rights crisis. And it, has, uh, it is now centered on the disparities that it has exposed. Uh, it is now evident that the lack of social security and protection has played a major part in the helplessness that we feel today in mitigating the uh, human suffering that has become so much pronounced in the current climate. Uh, people and communities uh, were already crying out for social and economic justice before the pandemic hit. Um, this public health emergency and subsequent economic crisis that we foresee uh, is certain to amplify these voices many times over. And um, uh, there has to be, therefore, a more of a focus on socioeconomic rights. And uh, the uh, justice sector now becomes of critical importance in ensuring that we are not only uh, geared to give legal justice, but also social justice. So communities become important, local level mechanisms become important, local governments become important, structures that are created by the state to respond to these kind of uh, access to justice issues as close to home, to the people as possible, have become important. You've raised a key point in terms of the everyday justice problems that, that people face. Um, in 2018, the World Justice Project conducted a survey of over 100,000 households around the world. And this survey revealed a wide gap between uh, the everyday justice problems people face and their ability to resolve them. Um, and in particular, problems with housing and employment and, and consumer debt were among the most common challenges. And these challenges, often people reported, resulted in really you know, physical and mental distress. So the socioeconomic point you make is, is really relevant in connecting the justice and uh, the social justice issues. I mean, how do you think justice actors should be addressing this challenge? And I'm thinking in particular 
about more vulnerable populations, women and children or marginalized groups, um, prison populations that are so directly affected by the crisis? You know, I think um, uh, as governments and states will also have to see their governance structures, they will have to realign their um, financing uh, priorities in terms of allocation of funds, especially in terms of uh, making it possible for people to realize their right to health and their right to life. I think the justice actors uh, human rights community and civil society in general will also have to reevaluate its strategic directions. And I think in that respect, it is very important that a lot of um, emphasis is given on advocacy for governments to strengthen their local systems, to make sure that health facilities are available within the local government authority and within their capacities. We have seen this during this pandemic, at least in countries like mine in Pakistan, where um, people generally suffer from, uh, a, you know, this justice gap, as we call it. Uh, we are now seeing that lockdowns, for instance, are um, uh, hampering the ability of people to get relief immediately and in time, um, and um, uh, protracted, uh, um, you know, um, you know, protracted uh, efforts to gain justice um, are resulting in more frustration. Um, in terms of um, the more vulnerable communities that you mentioned, for instance, prisons, I think in that sense, in many countries, prisons have had some attention during this time. And um, although many countries have failed to take the right uh, and more suitable and appropriate actions with respect to protecting the prison populations. But at the same time, I think there are other areas and other vulnerable groups that have been totally neglected. I think, for instance, on gender-based violence, uh, there, even the existing mechanisms have failed to function and deliver in this time of crisis. Women who are um, you know, um, victims of gender-based violence, uh, transgender communities in many countries are facing terrible uh, discrimination, um, lack of access, um, even to the basic complaint mechanisms that exist. And I think that's um, making this crisis much more difficult for the more vulnerable communities to bear than it is in general for others. So I do believe that there is this responsibility and role of the justice actors to keep a focus on these communities to remove, to um, relieve vulnerabilities where possible by better organization, better access to these communities uh, and a sustained access to these communities. They also now need to understand that we have to not just look, uh, look at this situation in terms of the current crisis, but also what's going to come afterwards. And what it, the, are the long-term damages, for instance, to democracy and the, and the, the values of democratic governance? Um, you know, in responses to this pandemic, governments are uh, marginalizing parliaments. Um, lawmaking uh, is more arbitrary than uh, respect for the constitutional um, ways and means of making laws and policies. 
there is less and less consultation. Um, uh, decision making has now shrunk into a few hands. And this is, I think, going to give a long term, uh, do a long term damage to, uh, to democracy. So I think this is something that we have to make sure that we are able to do. Also, I think it's important to understand the role of, of courts and judiciaries. I think they have, the judiciary has an important role at this time, not just to supervise the uh, response to the pandemic by governments to ensure that they, it remains within the constitutional guarantees and is compliant with human rights standards, but it should also resist temptation to hurt democracy by overreach, which will uh, infringe on the domain of other institutions like the parliament. I think these are critical points when we think about the macro system in which this emergency is happening and all of its effects on how we govern ourselves. So thank you for raising those. Um, let me turn to Micah now uh, and say a bit more about what the Task Force on Justice report um, offers us. Um, you and your co-authors propose a number of recommendations to, to address these problems. Um, what actions should be taken immediately, do you think, to cope with the, the new burdens facing the justice system? Yes, uh, thank you, Ted, and thank you for, uh, for having me on this podcast. Um, as you said at the beginning, this pandemic is truly global, um, and country after country uh, is now finding itself in a public health emergency. Even though in some places the authorities are now starting to slowly ease the restrictions, there will be emergency measures in place for many months to come. So in this pandemic, the justice actors find themselves on the front line of the response, um, and they are implementing and enforcing these measures. So in our briefing, we focused on those, uh, those um, immediate responses. And building on the work of the task force, we asked the question, how can the justice workforce continue to provide people-centered justice services under these circumstances? We analyzed what evidence and experiences we could find. Um, and as you said, we have many co-authors. We gathered input from over 50 experts around the world. Um, and based on this, we identified a number of priorities uh, for justice leaders in the, in the current context. So if some immediate priorities in this public health emergency. Um, one obvious, uh, but very important, enforce these emergency measures fairly. So there's lockdowns, there's stay-at-home orders. Many measures were taken with great speed, and they're changing all the time. Um, enforcement by police and other justice actors needs to be fair and visible in order to be successful. And people are watching uh, everything that's happening very closely. Another one is to make people your partners, um, community leaders, uh, local authorities, grassroots justice defenders. They can all contribute to the society's response to the pandemic. Um, and, and we need to work together. Actors need to work together. If ever there was a time to coordinate between these different actors, it is really now. Another one that we point out in our, in our briefing is that the justice workforce itself needs to be protected. They are in the front line. Uh, think of the police officers, think of um, uh, people, uh, the prison guards, uh, people um, performing emergency services. Like all frontline workers that are performing these essential services, the justice workforce needs to be properly protected with the right materials, um, and they also should be a priority for testing. We also need, even though we're in this state of emergency and things are changing rapidly, we need to start looking ahead at what the next phases of the containment will look like. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't look like we'll be 
getting back to normal soon. And so there are all kinds of developments happening, like tracking apps. Uh, what are the conditions for tracking apps and how do we safeguard people's rights when these are implemented on a large scale? Reopening the economy. What will what will reopening businesses mean um, for, for, for liability of, of companies if their employees or, or customers get infected? These are all questions that I think, even though we're in this case of emergency, justice actors should start thinking about and, uh, and preparing for. Yeah, no, those are very good examples of how justice frontline workers are affected immediately. And as you said, on the front lines, and in many cases, most vulnerable to, to the disease and should get priority attention. But of course, there, there are other maybe less direct effects um, or maybe less immediate effects. For example, you might see, as Hina pointed out, um, with domestic violence, you might see other hotspots arise in which there's a risk of greater violence. Um, what do what the co-authors think about uh, dealing with those issues? So protecting people from violence is indeed a very uh, important priority uh, that has been raised uh, by, many, by many leaders. Um, uh, home is not a safe place for everyone, and we have seen reports um, uh, from around the world about spikes in domestic violence, while uh, the ability to provide services um, and, and, and intervene is, is severely hampered by, by uh, social distancing rules, closures of, of police offices. So around the world, there are uh, 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 people struggling to find the right way to deal with this issue. It does uh, indeed, as, um, as Hina uh, pointed out uh, rightly, uh, uh, deserve uh, attention because it is of major concern. Um, and there's other types of violence too that uh, that could spike and that need to be properly responded to uh, by by the justice workforce. Another one um, is also an immediate priority and it can help us look at the, a bit of the longer term, which is reduced demand on our justice systems. In our justice for all report, which you also mentioned, and we used uh, the World Justice Project uh, data to um, to make this estimate, this this massive justice gap that exists, 1.5 billion. People are unable to resolve their justice problem. And that was before the pandemic. Um, so we can already see that uh, this justice gap is increasing and, and the pandemic is, is, um, is deepening the injustices that, that exist around the world. You know, one of the so, other interesting um, elements of what we're seeing unfold, particularly as court systems are trying to adjust to the new realities of social distancing is the increased use of innovation um, and technology. And I'm wondering if you have identified any initial positive examples on that front. Yeah, this is actually, uh, I think, one of the few silver linings to, to the pandemic. Um, innovations in the justice sector, particularly in the courts, were moving at a snail pace. Um, and due to the pandemic, we've now seen more innovation, I would say, in the past six weeks than we have probably in the last decade. Um, I heard someone say that uh, court systems have moved straight from the 19th century into the 21st century. Um, uh, and I think that's, that's true in, in many ways. Of course, um, that, um, that raises new concerns um, and we should be aware of those and we should uh, immediately think about addressing those because there are people who do not have access to that technology. So, uh, so there is, um, there is that, that risk of new exclusions. At the same time, I think innovating uh, procedures and thinking about some of these central questions about how courts um, uh, uh, and other justice actors actually can, can service people and can provide their services um, is, is a very critical uh, development.
Yeah, I think the justice tech environment is ripe for uh, insertion in what is really an antiquated judicial system in so many countries. And of course, you have to do this in a way that protects uh, victims' rights, defendants' rights, uh, make sure that juries are allowed to actually interrogate and identify situations that you might not be able to pick up on a video or audio um, teleconference type of uh, situation. So I think that's a really interesting area of work. But we're also going to have to think about the medium and long term. As Hina said, uh, this is going to be with us for a long time and we're talking about major change. What do you see as some of the medium to longer term steps that should be taken to, to ultimately reach the goal that has been identified by the UN, which is providing access to justice for all? I think in the long term, as uh, we, uh, as our main report that we launched um, uh, last year um, shows, there are so many challenges uh, in, for every country uh, in terms of improving their justice systems. Uh, I think added to that now is um, what Micah has just been talking about, which is the use of technology. You know. Uh, in terms of my country, for instance, the courts have put up a valiant effort to make sure that people still have um, uh, access to courts uh, for the very urgent uh, cases, especially cases where violence is involved uh, to children, to women, etc. But the, it would have been vastly improved if we had the capacity and the capability of using new technology. And I think this is something that justice systems should seriously consider. It all, it not, it's not just during times where um, uh, people's movement is, uh, is restricted, but also it is an inexpensive way of um, delivering justice and administering justice. Um, we have experimented a little bit with that in Pakistan, but not very successfully. And I think there should be more and more resources available to be able to do that. Um, there are, of course, other bigger challenges as well in terms of making sure that the justice system is able to have a, um, a more sensitive approach towards making sure that the more vulnerable are able to access justice and uh, there is less discrimination, um, less uh, 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 discrimination, not just, not just based on gender, etc., but also on financial uh, capacity to get justice. So I think pro bono work, uh, legal assistance, legal aid, paralegals in the communities and training of those paralegals, more legal awareness, I think these are some of the initiatives that are already and uh, we are that we are already contemplating. But I think what is now very important is the people's awareness that the right to health is a fundamental human right, and their uh, demand for this is not just legitimate; it is very timely, and it has to come. That's, a, that's an excellent point. I think it also helps emphasize the importance of understanding the situation that most people face. And there we need more data. And I wonder, Mike, if you want to say a bit more about the data demands. Can I say something before Mike talks about data? I yes. think it's very important that when we talk about rights, we make sure 
that in all countries of the world, constitutional guarantees include enforcement of, of, of social and economic rights. In many countries, the constitutions may recognize these, but do not create sufficiently uh, strong and efficient enforcement mechanisms for these rights. And this is one job that justice actors must do, and they must engage with parliaments and lawmakers. Certainly here in the United States, that is a raging political debate, uh, the right to health. And I think we'll hear a lot more about it in the coming months as we get closer to our November elections. Sorry, not just the right to health, but the right to social security. Which is, you know, something that if you go back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, this is articulated as a basic human right. And yet so many societies have not really properly funded the social security uh, mechanisms and, and safety nets that people need, especially in crises like this one. And if I can build on that and draw it also to specifically to the role of the justice sector, because I I think um, uh, uh, what what um, what Hina pointed out is absolutely uh, right that the, the, the current pandemic has exposed uh, problems uh, in our societies that many knew existed, but have now become so so visible that that it will require a response. And I think there will be there will be debates in every country in the world about how to what these rights really mean and what they mean in practice and how we can translate that uh, into into real improvements in people people's lives. And I do think that justice actors have an important role to play in that. Um, and, and justice sectors um, uh, have not been uh, functioning for all. I mean, you mentioned uh, a goal 16 and, and the ambition to provide access to justice for all. But justice for all is not has not been a reality. Um, uh, and in fact, in our justice for all report, we write that the current justice systems provide only provide justice for the few. So together with those substantive rights, I think the way that the, 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 the justice systems, the procedures, the, the way we reach people with the way we help people solve their justice problems will also come under uh, under increased um, scrutiny. And, and to bring that uh, back to, to the question of justice uh, data, Ted, I think um, the reason we need data is because we need to understand what people's justice problems are. What are the issues they are facing? What are the problems they're trying to resolve? And then ask ourselves, are uh, are, is the access we're providing, is that actually helping them? Um, and, and, and I think in this pandemic, um, it's, it's even more urgent to understand people's justice needs because they are shifting so quickly. Um, we mentioned the spike in domestic violence, um, but there's so many other rapid changes taking place with immense effects. Uh, people losing their jobs at unprecedented scale. Um, um, uh, that that brings the whole question of access to public services, access to health services, access to health insurance, but also access to uh, unemployment benefits, access to some of these uh, uh, emergency uh, support uh, that that governments are providing. So there's this is shifting, um, and and I think we know from um, uh, from the situation before the pandemic that if people access services there's always going to be a certain percentage that runs into problems or runs into difficulties and they will need to to have either a lawyer or a paralegal or some uh, or a court procedure they need you know their problem becomes a justice problem and that needs to be resolved so we know that justice problems are going to increase on a massive scale and 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 getting a, a quick way of getting the right justice data to understand where the problems are emerging and how they can best be resolved i think is, is going to be very critical in the in the months ahead 
Yeah, you know, the old phrase about every crisis uh, offers opportunity, and I think this really is an opportunity to modernize the access to justice uh, environment in really dramatic ways. And you think about who were the frontline justice providers, increasingly it's um, paralegals, it's, you know, other forms of legal aid that aren't, don't require lawyers necessarily, but um, at, a, at a really grassroots level, you might be able to deliver justice in particularly most basic elements of, as you said, access to public services is so important. But, so maybe we could turn briefly to what are some of the promising examples that you've seen so far and which are documented in the report about how countries are responding to some of these justice challenges? Yes, thank you. I think that's that's very interesting to see the rapid change in learning and improvements that are that are taking place. So so we've we've collected some, but there's 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 a lot of inspiring um, action taken around the world. So in to respond to the the spike in domestic violence, France has created pop-up service centers um, where traditional places to report domestic violence had to close. Um, they have now created pop-up centers in in supermarkets and pharmacies where victims of um, of abuse have to go on their daily uh, to get their daily groceries, for example, and then they can report domestic violence and seek uh, seek support. And in France, they've also booked thousands of hotel rooms that were vacant due to the pandemic to provide safe shelter for people who need to escape a, a dangerous situation. Um, another one is from Argentina, where they have reduced demand on their justice system by temporarily prohibiting utility companies from cutting off customers who have not paid their bills. Um, so that's an obvious way to reduce conflict, reduce uh, uh, justice problems for people, um, and, and then sort those uh, issues out uh, uh, later. Um, some countries, I, th I think Italy was the first, but it's been, been copied in many other countries, have suspended mortgage payments um, uh, or suspended um, uh, evictions of people from their home. Another thing, and this, this goes back to the justice data, um, uh, uh, the National Statistics Office in Canada is now crowdsourcing data about impacts of the pandemic on people's lives. Normally, uh, statistics will have a very structural way of gathering data with surveys and that take time, um, and that are representative samples. But now they have started to, um, to conduct surveys online. Um, and I saw yesterday that over 200,000 people, uh, Canadians have already participated in some of these surveys. And they are telling, um, uh, that's a huge source of information to, to find out what the, the pandemic is really meaning in people's uh, people's lives and I think it would be great if they could do a specific survey on the justice problems that uh, that people face um, and another one Sierra Leone for example has created a task force and this is part I think of um, of, of looking forward of next phases of the pandemic and Sierra Leone has created a task force to oversee the spending of international support for its pandemic response um, to to prevent corruption this is one of the one of the lessons learned from the Ebola pandemic, uh, but it also includes a mechanism for people to make complaints or reports uh, of wrongdoing or, or suspected uh, corruption. So I think that individual complaint procedure is also very important in that, uh, in that example. Um, that's really good to hear of the concrete ways that uh, people are responding, both in the demand and so reducing demand and picking up on the supply side. And earlier we talked about some of the new innovative and technological ways that people are responding to the crisis. And overall, what we're trying to get at here is more people-centered justice systems. Are there any specific examples in the technology space you've, you've heard of or that we should be paying attention to? 
So interestingly, um, I think a lot of the technology was already out there, uh, but it's more the fact that it's now being used um, and, and, and that has gone at a rapid pace. And I think even many, many justice providers had pilots with technology, but it was all on a very small scale and it's now becoming much more mainstream. That of course includes um, virtual court sessions, uh, live stream delivery of, uh, of judgments, uh, online mediations, um, reporting abuse on WhatsApp, um, submitting court documents via Dropbox, all kinds of things that were possible before the pandemic but just weren't done and are now suddenly being used. But what's interesting, I think, um, is, is, and it's perhaps even more important, and that's this fundamental question that's now being asked that somehow had, had, had not received much attention. What is it really that we are providing to people and how can we do this under the current circumstances? So um, suddenly the argument, well, this is how we've always done it, um, is, is out the window uh, because everything has changed. So we have to, and all the actors have to go back and, how, and, and work together and, and, and think, um, think about that question. How can, we, how can we make things faster, simpler, accessible? What is it really that people need um, uh, and, and how can we provide that? Well, what comes with this rise in technology, and of course it's critical in a public health emergency to have good surveillance tools for contact tracing, but it raises some serious uh, privacy issues. Yes, um, I, and I, I think that that's a very critical area of work that human rights communities must look into. Um, we, are, we are already, um, uh, we were already concerned about the uh, data collection and um, its uh, its use for surveillance in many countries of the world. Uh, now we've become even more um, skeptical about the way that um, data has been used uh, uh, during this pandemic uh, and the potential of its use even after the pandemic ends. So this is this this is something worrying, and I think we need to look at it. But just going on on the technological side, I think it's not that easy just to link it to access to justice activities. A, a lot of work has to be done in many countries of the world to create the right infrastructure for these tech, technical uh, innovations to be properly used to make. Um, uh, justice expeditions to make it inexpensive and make it accessible to all. In my country, for instance, um, people, uh, the infrastructure is poor, but also people do not even have the devices to be able to use that, even if the courts were able to, for instance, make available um, electronic and virtual court sessions uh, to people, most people would not be able to access it. So these are some things that we have to keep in mind where our priorities are and to be able to look at the realities in most countries of the world and how much how much of the global population should benefit from uh, the priorities that we that we um, um, uh, you know earmark for our next um, goals and objectives. Well, these issues, as complex as they are, are brilliantly set forth in this new report by the Task Force on Justice, which Tina Jelani, our guest, um, is uh, co-chair of, and uh, Mike Langen has, as program lead, helped pull all this data together and analysis. It's available on uh, the, the internet, 
uh, under the Pathfinders or Task Force on Justice websites. I strongly encourage you to take a dive and get into the meat of it. This is a good appetizer of identifying the big issues and some of the solutions, because I think we really should be looking forward to this as a moment to help rebuild better in the future uh, these critical justice systems that will make a difference for, for all. Um, I want to thank our guests, uh, Michael Langen from Pathfinders and Hina Jelani from The Elders. Um, we'll be doing more of these podcasts and webinars in the coming weeks and months. Our next episode uh, webinar session will be held on May 12th with the American Society of International Law. And the focus will be on the authoritarian influence on public international law, uh, featuring Tom Ginsburg a professor from the University of Chicago. Um, thank you again for tuning in and thank we you, look Ted. forward to joining you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ted.